Hello, everyone. This is Food Talks executive producer Rob Perra. On today's episode, Danny interviews Dr. Felix Kwame Yaboa, social science researcher and professor of international development at Michigan State University. They discuss Yaboa's recent work at the intersection of land access, youth livelihoods, and agricultural policy in sub Saharan Africa. Enjoy the show. Today, I get to chat with Dr. Felix Kwame Yaboa, who is a social policy researcher and professor uh, of international development at Michigan State University. He is an expert in food system transformation, natural resource management, and youth livelihood issues, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. He most recently published a paper with the International Fund for Agricultural Development on youth access to land, migration, and employment patterns in sub-Saharan Africa. Kwame, I'm so glad you could be with us today. You know I love Michigan State and, and all of the great work that uh, you and and um, Dr. Tom Jane and uh, Dr. William Burke are doing around so many issues that I, I think are important to the food system. Danielle, it's my pleasure to be here. And thank you very much for this opportunity to share some insights on the work that we have been doing. Fantastic. So I, I kind of just want to dive right into uh, how, you know, COVID-19 uh, will have an impact on, on sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, before it reached the continent, you know, obviously Africa was already grappling with a lot of food security challenges. What sort of systemic issues are exacerbating the pandemic's impact on food and nutrition security for vulnerable populations? Well, Daniel, thank you very much for um, that um, question. I would say that um, COVID-19 is not just one of the shocks, but it's just, it, it's just one of the shocks that the mm-hmm. continent is battling. If you recall, the continent was already battling with the fall armyworm, and it was also battling with the locusts, uh, the desert locusts. So mm-hmm. COVID-19 essentially is adding to the list, and not to talk of climate change, which is right. also on the horizon that the continent is uh, battling with. But what COVID-19 um, has done um, currently is that the despite it being a health emergency, the lockdown measures and the social uh, distancing and the border closures that were put in place has negatively impacted agriculture. So if you think of the fact that this is the time that the harvest of 2019-2020 will be reaching market, and that is the time where we have these lockdowns happening across yeah. The, uh, the continent, which means most farmers are going to lose income and will not have access to market to be able to sell their products. And then you could also think of the other side, um, that besides the, um, the, the access to market, we, people are also about to plant. We are about entering the planting mm-hmm. season now. And we do know that much of that planting may occur in rural areas, but the inputs that is needed to plant flows from the urban centers into mm-hmm. those rural areas. And the lockdowns are making it difficult for those farmers uh, to assess the necessary input. So the concern that we and uh, most of my colleagues has is these health emergencies could essentially translate into food insecurity if we do not put measures in place now to ensure that their farmers have access to the inputs that they need and even 
this is the time you're supposed to be spraying for the fall armyworm. Then if people are locked down and we don't, we miss that window, we will not be able to curtail the spread of the fall armyworm as well. So those are some of the concerns that uh, we have. Absolutely. It's a long list of challenges that African farmers are facing right now all across the continent. And I'm glad you brought up the issue of inputs because you're right, they're they're coming from mostly urban centers. So it's really important to remember those urban-rural linkages. It's not just, you know, rural folks who will suffer, urban folks who will suffer. It's really, the, you know, they're part of a of a whole system. And, and I think we forget that. We, you know, we put them in their silo. We put the 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 farmers in their silo and we put the city folk in their silo, but there, there's a lot of interaction that needs to go on there for, for agricultural systems to work. And <clears throat> fall armyworm has had a devastating impact uh, uh, in, in Africa as well as the locusts. I mean, there's just this whole litany of challenges and um, FAO, the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, is sort of looking at a doubling of hunger over the next year. And, and that's really frightening because as you as you so clearly said, this is a, a continent facing multiple challenges right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, 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 that's absolutely true. Uh, that's absolutely true. And if you also, if, when you start thinking about some of these interconnections, we have uh, the situation of designating some services as essential while others right. are non-essential. So, I do know that um, food stores were designated as um, essential and they could reopen. Now, but then feed stores, where it's in some countries, feed stores were designated as non-essential. Wow. Although they are essential inputs to feeding um, livestock. So some of those, um, as my colleague put it, essential, uh, non-essential essentials were not adequately taken care of, which, which unfortunately impacted agriculture. Right, right. All of these sort of um, unintended, unintended consequences of trying to keep people safe. Like, I get it. I get, you know, what, but like closing markets, closing feed stores, these are things that have a, have a huge impact on, on farmers. I, I know a lot of your recent work revolves around the labor force in agriculture in Africa. You and your colleagues have argued that the numbers uh, we're, we're used to seeing don't account for full-time equivalents when, when we're talking about youth in, in agriculture. Could you explain to our audience what you mean by that full-time equivalence, why it matters, and how it changes sort of your outlook on, on the labor force in, in Africa? Um, Daniel, so, so our, our argument um, mainly that it's, uh, looks at what is happening and the narrative of that there is an aging farming population mm-hmm. in, on, on, on the continent. And the number that is normally peddled is 60 years old, that African farmers are aging because young people uh, have no interest in that. And we were quite surprised. We looked around and we could not find an empirical basis behind it. And if you think of the fact that the continent is very young, with an average age of about 19, and with about 54% of the population engage in agriculture. So it was a bit puzzling to f- realize that about the average age would be about 60 um, years old. Mm-hmm. So we actually looked at the trends in the average age over time over the past decade in about six uh, different countries. And what we realized that uh, that the average age of individuals that are primarily 
engage in agriculture ranges from about 32 in Tanzania to about 39 in Tanzania. Even when we control for the young people that are engaged in agriculture, that is those between the age of 15 and 24, because we mm -hmm. believe that those typically are engaged in it in, um, on a part-time basis, mm -hmm. they, uh, the average age um, um, ranges from about 38 to about 45, which is still about 15 years younger than what we have seen. And then when you remove the upper limit of the working age population, you include those that are older than the age of 64. And you add them, you are having the average age increase on the average by just one to two, because th that group only accounts for 3% of the population. So there doesn't seem to be a basis to support the fact that there is, an, um, there is um, the average age of the labor force in agriculture is about 60. What we also realize that if you also look at a trend over time, you also see that the average age has increased just by one to two uh, years over the 10 year span that we had looked at across those um, six countries. And then, uh, but we also noticed that within the um, or farm sector, those that are employed there about, are about two to three years younger than those in agriculture, which is expected because we have seen a massive um, explosion of off-farm job opportunities. And young people who have the education and, are, and tend to be more mobile are moving to take advantage of those jobs, which is depressing the age over there. So mm -hmm. primarily we understand um, that the Africa is not at risk of an aging farm population. There's already a large number of young people engaged in the sector. I would argue that what is missing in the sector is those young people who have access to productive resources and have the knowledge and the skill set that can help improve productivity on, in, in the agricultural sector. So, 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 so that is the main argument. And when you were talking about the full-time equivalent, that essentially is trying to look at the amount of time that they devote to it, which would be equivalent to working full-time in that mm. particular um, sector. So that is essentially what it did. It was just controlling for the time that you spend in there. In which six countries did you cover? Tanzania and five others? Yes, we have Tanzania, we have um, Nigeria, we have Ghana, uh, we have Rwanda, um, and then we have, we, we have Uganda and Zambia. And those six countries account for about 33% of the population in sub-Saharan Africa. I, I, I also understand that, you know, you, you and, and your colleagues are really thinking about policies that will make working in agriculture more attractive to young people. And you, you mentioned, you know, uh, uh, young people who are educated, they want off-farm jobs, they want to move to cities. What are the sorts of things that we can do to really increase the appeal of agriculture in rural areas so that youth want to continue being part of it? I mean, I think they a lot of young people ha have left farming, not just in, in sub-Saharan Africa, but in other places like the United States, because it's it's arduous work. It, it, you know, it can be very labor intensive. How can we we reverse that? How can we we talk about ways to make rural areas more intellectually stimulating places to live, more fun places to live, more economically viable places to live? 
Well, uh, I, I think, uh, Danielle, and I typically say that young people are not interested in any particular sector. They just want sector that can give them money. So, uh, and I typically give this example that the same young people who will cross the Mediterranean from Africa to go to um, Europe in, in fleeing from agriculture still goes to Italy and work on a farm. The difference is they may, there's a return to labor mm-hmm. in, uh, um, in the farm in Italy is higher than the returns that they are going to make when they are on the continent. So if we want young people to stay in agriculture, then we have to make agriculture profitable for, for those young people. And for agriculture to be profitable, it has to be productive. And so, so giving them access to those productive resources that will allow them to increase the profitability of agriculture is going to be critical. So that will be one. And um, along with that is the idea of agriculture being um, laborious and uh, backbreaking. Young people want the technology. So the extent to which we could infuse more technology into agriculture and reduce uh, how laborious agriculture is, uh, young people will be attracted to it. I'm wondering how this push for new technologies sort of uh, gels with the need for appropriate technologies. I mean, I think technology is often looked at as the silver bullet and, oh, that's what's going to save, you know, agriculture or increase food security, et cetera. But can you talk about the different, I mean, I, I, from my perspective, you know, things like artificial intelligence and big data, they can have, you know, a, a, a positive impact on farmers of all sizes all, all over the world. But, you know, what I have observed, you know, traveling to half the continent over the last several years, I've been to 26 countries in Africa, is that what really works is appropriate technologies. Technologies that are developed within communities that are very participatory in nature, that are developed to serve a community's needs rather than, you know, the needs that I I think I see or the needs that a researcher like yourself sees. What, what are your thoughts on that? I, th- I think you are absolutely uh, spot on about that, that, Technologies will only work well if they account for the realities on the ground. And uh, typically, you have these technologies that are developed in the West or uh, or even in Europe and may not necessarily be adaptable to Africa's own settings. So making sure that those technologies are adaptable to those settings is going to be critical. And uh, is, is one reason why we advocate for strengthening uh, local uh, research and development in Africa. That way they can de- develop those technologies that they need locally or even have the capacity to be able to um, borrow technologies from outside mm-hmm. but adapt it to their local setting. And, 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 and I think helping Africa to develop their own um, form of land grant and the corporate extension yes. model could be an important way of uh, of addressing that um, issue of technology mismatch. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, cooperative extension systems again all over the world have have you know nearly disappeared, but especially in sub-Saharan Africa, a lot of farmers get their information from agro dealers and not you know trained experts 
in, you know, uh, in, in that particular climate or, you know, that particular kind of agriculture that a, a farmer is practicing. How can we, how can we convince policymakers that that needs to happen, that we need more research? I mean, I think this is the, the, the question that I always come back to. How can we convince policymakers in Africa that this is something they need to invest in? I think it's, it's, it's a tough one, but I think it's, it's something that is also uh, doable. It, it comes down to the value that the uh, researchers are able to communicate to the policy makers. So if you're able to let policy makers know that, okay, we were, we were about to start this project. When you started this project, if it is not evidence-based, these are the amount of waste that is associated with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you take your time, do the research, and know exactly um, the appropriate methods to take, then this is how much you are going to save. I think communicating some of those values and then going back to also show them how past research has been critical to bring about that change. And there are several examples. Um, We see research was integral to the Green Revolution um, that we saw uh, in in Asia. The research was integral even to agriculture transformation here uh, in the the US. That was what a land grant was about. Uh, So so, so communicating that to policymakers. And and, and I believe African leaders um, are coming to terms with the need for this research. But sometimes it comes across as is a priority, how they are prioritizing the limited resources they have across the various needs um, that, is, uh, uh, that they have to attend to. Well, and I think that's especially important now that policymakers understand the value of small scale and medium scale agriculture in their countries because it's, you know, it's small and medium-sized farmers who are really feeding communities, especially now with borders closed, with, you know, the lockdown. So I I, I think, you know, you you mentioned that convincing um, uh, policymakers, you know, is really about the economics, convincing them that this makes sense economically. You know, in this situation, with farmers having very few safety nets, uh, and, you know, looking at a, a year or two ahead where they might not be making a lot of money off their crops and not have the money to buy seeds or inputs or any of the other things you mentioned. What what sorts of things should policymakers be doing to make sure that farming populations are protected? I would say over the past couple of decades, agriculture has been a priority on the continent. And we saw that with the um, CADEP. So my advice would be to uh, my advice will, to policymakers will be do not take your eyes off the agricultural sector mm-hmm. but continue on those investments the, the CADEP requires them to commit up to about 10% of their public expenditure to agriculture but not many countries not many countries are meeting that 10% that CADEP requires Yes, it's 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 it's, it's uh, the implementation is always a challenge that is understandable, uh, but at least some level of investment is still needed, even if they are not meeting that ten percent. They sure. need to continue on that kind of investment uh, to ensure that farmers get the uh, resources that they need to uh, continue providing food for us.
Absolutely. I want to shift gears a little bit. I know another important aspect of the work you do has focused on land ownership. And I, our, our listeners and our viewers might not understand sort of how, how land is owned uh, and, and, and how it's, you know, it, it means different things across the continent. Um, and so I, I'm wondering if you can talk about how land ownership is changing and what that means for the demographic and technology patterns that we just talked about a few minutes ago. Okay, thank you very much, Diane. I think uh, land ownership is is, is changing um, rapidly, and I think there's a lot of dynamics happening on the continent. One that I will want to point out is, uh, despite this widespread perception of land abundance on the continent, the evidence suggests that about 90% of all available arable land now it's concentrated in just um, nine countries mm. on the continent. So the remaining 45 is either land constrained or approaching the limits of their land. Uh-huh. So there is growing land scarcity on the continent. And then because of rapid population growth and the intergenerational subdivision of land, what we are also seeing is a decline in the amount of land per capita over time. So the data suggests that in about 40 countries in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, from the 1970s, land per capita, farmland per capita had declined by about 30 to 40 percent which means most farmers are now left with very small parcels of land, which they farm continuously. And if they are not implementing integrated soil fertility management, their land is degrading very quickly. And then we also have, because of that uh, interest in land from internationals, investors, as well as an entrepreneurial class of African uh, investors who are, now using their rent from, it could be from the public service. They are also purchasing land for farming or even for speculative reasons. And that is documented in the rise of the, what we call the medium scale farms, farms between five to 20 hectares. And so, uh, and those are increasingly account for um, a greater share of agricultural market surplus and also the amount of land that is owned. Um, on the on, on the continent, these demands are also increasing prices of land. Mm. So, and they are limiting youth, young people access to some of those uh, land. And another interesting uh, part is most rural youth acquire land through inheritance. Right. Uh, but even in areas where there is land is available, because their parents are now living longer because of rising life expectancy, those young people are now forced to wait into their older year ages in order to be able to inherit um, land. And right. we are seeing that land access to land is becoming one of the constraints for young people being able to engage in agriculture. And it's also Absolutely. fueling. Uh, migration in on the continent. Absolutely. And, and uh, you know, that's such a, I mean, we, we've seen 
uh, you know, news reports of of young people who've tried to cross, you know, to the Mediterranean to find work and, and you know, ships sink and boats sink. And it's just, a, you know, the, the, the toll that migration has had on, on Africa is, is really devastating because you're, you're losing your sort of your most important resource, which is, you know, a, a labor force that is interested, that can do these things um, and is, you know, a powerful force for change. We, we talked a lot about the need for governments to invest in agriculture, but they also need to invest in young people in agriculture and, and really drive the social and economic advancements that are needed to keep them, you know, wanting to be farmers. I want to go back to that point because I, I, I'm interested in hearing from you. What are sort of some of the specific things that, that are needed in terms of investing in young people? You know, it's education, obviously, but there are other things need to, to take place for, for youth to want to be farmers and want to be involved in, in, in food production. Or science and, and, you know, the work that the people like you do, you know, the, the awareness, the education, the cooperative extension systems, you know, the, uh, the food safety technicians. There's, there's a whole range of jobs available in the food and agriculture system. Uh, so, you know, my, my question is, how do we get youth to be involved in those things? I, I, think, I think one of the uh, biggest barriers has got to do with land. So land is one aspect of it. So measures that allow young people to have access to mm-hmm. land. There are um, areas where, uh, by virtue of a minimum domain, for, uh, government is able to procure land. Could we have situations where governments are able to procure some of those land and give those land to young people who are interested in farming? So that could be one way of encouraging mm-hmm. more young people to go into it. The second part has got to do with financing, access to uh, finance. Most banks don't want to finance agriculture. And right. even when you are young, that even adds to the barrier that you have because there's little that you can show. So coming up with programs that help these young people to assess finance is going to be uh, critical to uh, them engaging in the agricultural sector. And then the uh, third part will be the market, which is very critical when it comes to productivity, uh, the profitability of agriculture. If those young people go into it and they are not able to get their produce from the farm to the market to make money, you don't expect them to go back into it again. And And expanding that access to market is not just the destination where it will be, but also how to think about infrastructure that exists to take those products from the farm to the market where it will be sold. So those are the investments um, that is needed. And then we also have to think about a technology. Now, I talked earlier on about coming up with technologies that are adaptable to that particular setting. So ensuring that you have the uh, research and uh, um, research systems that supply the knowledge that is needed to increase productivity on the farm and, and then um, give them these like, uh, extension services that is able to send that information to them is going to be critical. And luckily for us, most of these young people are online. 
and they have access to their mobile phones. So we may not necessarily have to go use traditional forms of extension. Right. We could use technology to get that information to them. And we've seen a number of young people going into that space right. and helping to alleviate some of the information constraints that uh, um, plague agriculture. Absolutely. Uh, you know, so it strikes me, you mentioned financing, um, mentorship, market access, infrastructure, technology, extension, access to information. These are things that are very similar to what I hear from young farming organizations all over the world, whether you're talking about Hungary or the United States. These are, are, are real barriers that all young farmers are facing. And it's just, you know, this is not just an, an, an African problem. This is a, a worldwide problem where we need to invest more in young farmers and young researchers and, and, and you know, make sure that they, they want to be involved in this space. One thing that I, I know that you're interested in that I also care very much about is the barriers that women in agriculture face um, in accessing land and education and other resources, and, and especially around financing. Um, how can government and, and private sector stakeholders really address the inequality that exists when we're talking about women farmers? Well, um, I, th I think the women farmers story could be quite similar to how we deal uh, with the issues of young people. Uh, I think one other uh, aspect that needs to be taken into consideration is the cultural aspect or those cultural barriers that hold uh, women down. So I do know that there are some areas the cultures do not allow women even to own land. Mm -hmm. So in those areas, if you are going to empower women, there has to be some kind of education within those uh, communities. And then governments may need to intervene working with those communities to make some reforms that will allow women to have access to those um, land. Um, and then, and then the same the same story when it comes to finance, that there has to be some um, some special program or some education mm -hmm. with the financial institutions and encourage them that look, when women are given opportunity, these are the benefits that we see, and there are women who have who have done incredibly well. And those could be the role models who could champion this course and show to those bankers and, and show to demonstrate to other individuals that the women are capable of holding their own and and um, and, and secure uh, and, and and use that to advocate for more rights for for women yeah it's really inspiring because despite so many challenges that women in farming face they are, you know, so successful a lot of the time with, you know, without a lot of, of the same resources that their male counterparts get. So it's, I'm always really inspired by what women farmers are able to do and how they're able to su succeed despite all the challenges. Um, a, a, an important part of, of, of your work, which might not seem obvious, is that you're not arguing for agri agricultural growth instead of broader economic growth and opportunities, but that agricultural growth leads to stronger uh, economies overall and more opportunities. So how do you explain sort of the, the, the connection there? So agricultural growth 
the, I think we typically look at it as a multiplier. So, so, so the the idea is that if you have an economy where a large number of people are engaged in agriculture, when you increase productivity on the farm, those individuals' incomes get increased. And when their incomes increased, those individuals demand more uh, off-farm goods and services because now they want to build homes, they want to sew new clothes and all that. And that demand also create jobs in the off-farm sector. And those jobs will end up pulling individuals that are on the farm to go and fill those jobs. So that investment that you made in agriculture end up circulating through the economy. So those are the multiply effects that we talked about. So in the same, and, and we've seen that play out in um, different ways. So if you talk about the Green Revolution, it started with um, the Green Revolution technologies improving the purchasing power of millions of farmers. And that's end up stimulating um, jobs in the off farm sector to, to absorb um, workers out of, out of the agriculture. So that is the pattern that we advocated for. That is not just agriculture, it's not just about getting more people to stay in agriculture, but agriculture right. becomes a means to people, for people to exit. And our own work has, has shown that over the past decade, those countries like Rwanda, like Tanzania, like Ghana, that invested to increase productivity on, in, in the agricultural sector are the ones that saw the largest exit of labor outside of, uh, uh, out of farming. And they also saw the greatest gains in labor productivity in the off-farm mm. sector because of that multiplier effect um, yeah. and the linkages that agriculture has with the rest of the economy. Yeah, that's why it's important to invest in farmers and agriculture and make sure that that's strong so all of these other things can happen. I want to go back to the point that we started on about, uh, you know, what what sort of COVID-19 has exposed. You know, it's it's made us feel very vulnerable. Our agriculture sectors are, are very vulnerable to, you know. Uh, what, what's happening, you mentioned, you know, the the closed borders, market access, you know, being sort of denied to farmers, et cetera. G- moving forward, there's going to be more global shocks, whether they're health-related or from climate change or for some, from something we can't even predict. How do we make sure that the agriculture sector is not only sort of, you know, um, protected, but ready to deal with those shocks? Because I feel that, you know, agriculture worldwide was not prepared for this and has not maybe reacted as well as as it could have. You know, farmers have had a lot of challenges. Even big food and big farming operations have had their share of of problems. How can we prepare for this in the future? I think think, um, there's a lot of investments that may need to, to be made. And um, a part of it is going to uh, revisiting. I, the, the, I would say COVID have essentially exposed some of the weaknesses that we mm-hmm. had in the in the system. So we've essentially um, gotten to know that, that, for example, the wet market approach of distributing food may not necessarily be sustainable in a time mm-hmm. of crisis. 
So this may be, this gives us a chance to start thinking about um, reforming our food distribution systems on the continent to ensure that food gets to those who might need it during times of crisis like this. It may also be a time to think about infrastructure. Um, this is the, uh, the, the, the border closures and, and that kind of things is only telling us that we, people, people have to move in order for food to be able to move across borders. Now, can we have situations where I do not need to travel? If I'm, a, if I'm a trader, I do not need to travel. I can just place a call and then the food could be delivered uh, to me. If we're able to do uh, but currently it's difficult to do that because of the infrastructural gap that is there. So dealing with some of those infrastructural gaps that allow free movement of food products across the continent is going to be a critical one. And, and I think it is, it is important in the context of what the continent is now talking about with uh, this um, African free or continental free trade um, agreement that mm. to, to successfully implement that, we need to be able to connect the continent and infrastructure is going to be very critical uh, to do that. So, Absolutely. although um, so, 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 so that will be um, one, and then we uh, those of us within the agricultural space will just have to keep reminding policymakers that taking our eyes off the agricultural sector could create long-term food insecurity and will turn this health crisis into a food security crisis in the long term, and mm-hmm. and, and and continue to advocate for it. Absolutely. I, I do want to push a little bit on the, the, the approach to, or a, a potential approach to wet markets. I visited my fair share uh, across Sub-Saharan Africa, across the world. I feel like those, you know, despite the health challenges that they often pose, and we're, we're not sure where COVID-19 came from yet, it, it might have come from a wet market in China, but there's they're still doing the research to figure that out. But they're also such important meeting places for farmers and especially women farmers or women sellers of produce. And so I, you know, that community that's developed, it's often the only time that women, you know, can get together and talk amongst themselves and, and share information. So I, I think, you know, that there has to be some sort of, uh, you know, right now in this emergency, in this crisis that continues, we have to, you know, make sure that people are, are separated, that there's a healthy distance between them. But I think moving forward, the community that those wet markets create can't sort of be dismissed. I, I think it's important for farmers and others to sort of gather and learn from one another. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I'm not advocating to to completely dismantle wet markets. I think it's the, the, the crisis just exposes some of the weaknesses in it. Right. And to the extent possible, if we can put in measures and that helps to mitigate the impact of crisis of this nature on that wet market. So like the issue of hygiene, right? Can we find ways to help right. them address the issue of hygiene? Because I personally don't think the wet market is going away anytime soon. It's an right. integral part of the cultures in this area. And um, because of the value, like you talk about the social connection and the rest, some of that need to be preserved. Um, but 
we also have to think about how to sustain it into the long term without falling prey to another crisis like this. Absolutely, absolutely. And I I liked what you just had to say about hygiene, looking at hygiene as part of the infrastructure that's needed. You know, we we have to sort of retrain our minds about how to think about these things. Um, Before I ask the last question, I want to make sure people know how to uh, learn more about your work. They can go to the MSU Food Security Group at, it's the worst website uh, that I've ever looked at. It's canr, C-A-N-R dot M-S-U dot E-D-U slash slash FSG. I will make sure that's available on Food Tank's website and social media, or you can just Google MSU Food Security Group. Um, they can find your the paper that you wrote for EFAD at EFAD.org. Are there any other websites that you want to give out, Kwame? I think I think those websites, um, that's justice to it. That's great. <laughs> that's great. I think I also direct them to the uh, Chicago Council for Global Affairs, uh, 2018 uh, food, uh, Global Food Security Report, which is a view for growth, transforming economies through agriculture, which I was privileged to be a lead author on. Great. We'll make sure that all of those uh, websites are available at foodtank.com. So my very last question, the question I ask everyone um, since the pandemic began is, who is inspiring you the most right now? It's such an uncertain time. There's a lot to sort of unravel. Who is really inspiring you? Well, I, I, I would say that um, the one that have the, 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 those, I would say the young people, that I'm seeing on the continent that are taking advantage of this crisis and coming out with innovative um, solutions. And I'll give one example of this young man in Ghana who came up with a hand-washing machine, essentially Uh picked up an empty barrel and um, was able to create an automatic hand washing. So you put your hands under that and then the water comes, which is very critical during this time of crisis. And for me, it represents the amount of innovation that we have and the innovative ideas that we have on the continent. And as I always say, when I look at myself and I compare myself to millions of young people on the continent, the difference is just opportunity. Absolutely. if we are willing to take a chance on these young people and provide them with the resources and, and opportunities to, to, to develop their skills and also places to apply those skill sets, I strongly believe that they could transform the continent and the agri-food sector and, and also have greater impact on the world in our lifetime. What a wonderful point to to end on. Uh, youth inspire me uh, so much every day too. So I think that's that's great. I want to thank you for joining me today, Kwame. Uh, reminder that this episode will also appear on our podcast, Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg. And I hope uh, folks will join me on our next episode when I'll be talking to you, Kari Hammerschlag uh, from Friends of the Earth. Thank you so much, Kwame. Please stay well and, and give my best to all of your colleagues. Thank you very much, Danielle, and I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg. Please rate, review, subscribe, and share the podcast. Make sure to return to foodtank.com every day for original reporting and analysis on the most pressing issues impacting our food system.